Hillbilly Horror Stories presents Eerie Encounters. I never really said goodbye to my great tabby peaches because, well, quite frankly, I never thought I was going to have to. She had been with me since I was six years old, and I just assumed that she would be with me until one of us passed away. But all that changed when my father moved us into our expensive new house in the desert hills when I was 11. Although we had had Peaches spayed when I was seven, I knew that she was a mother and I was her adopted daughter. She took care of me, licking my fingers when I broke my arm on the monkey bars in the third grade, hissing at the neighborhood kids who sometimes bullied me and admonishing me to get more sleep on school nights by pushing my books down at night and laying on top of them so I had no choice but to stop reading and call it a night. On the nights my parents fought, which was unfortunately often, Peaches would be there in my room, sitting on my strawberry shortcake twin sheets, blinking slowly at me as I walked in, her tail tapping the bed as if to say, Come sit down, welcoming the crying, nauseated mess as the evening had left me. My father merely tolerated Peaches, who never caused too much trouble in our first house. Despite her maternal learnings, there was still a ruthless hunter inside of her, and she didn't hesitate to kill the innocent, namely baby birds. In fact, that's all she killed. Sure, she played with larger, more competitive prey, which I tried to use as a selling point for keeping her when we moved to our new place, because the desert's full of rodents and snakes but she tended to prefer climbing the trees in our neighborhood, plucking the baby birds straight from their nest, and depositing their tiny carcasses on the welcome mat in our back porch. My father, a doctor, didn't see the fruits of Peach's labor as a gift. He saw it as a health hazard. By the time we moved, my parents' fighting had gotten much worse. Their arguments were often violent and drenched in suicidal or murderous threats. To complicate things further, Peaches was urinating on the corners of our spacious house, and my father was constantly threatening to take her to the pound. The way things were going, I should have known that it wasn't going to be long before both my mother and Peaches were kicked out of the house, but I was an optimistic child. On her doctor's orders, my mother checked herself into a mental ward of our local hospital for a two-week rest. My father pounced filing a restraining order that prevented her from coming back home and a little while later bringing his girlfriend, who would later become my stepmother, home. Through all of this, Peaches brought me comfort by simply being there, purring when I could stroke her fur and distracting me when I was down. Then one night, like my mother, she was gone. I didn't go searching for her because I just assumed she was having fun and would be back later, but that never happened. After a few days, I began posting pictures of her in local animal shelters. I took out an ad in our paper asking for help. I offered $50 and a couple of my Nintendo games as a reward. My father and his girlfriend, who had begun taking me to the mall and trying to befriend me, suggested that maybe a coyote may have eaten my cat. The sigh that our housekeeper Katie gave told me that this was probably not the case. But I went out into the desert again, searching for any sign of peaches. I found nothing. A few weeks later, while we were doing dishes, Katie told me what had really happened. She had seen my uncle outside, wandering around as if he was looking for something. He had a can of something, 
and he had used it to lure peaches to him. Then what she told me shocked me even more. Katie had seen him grab peaches, put her into a sack, and then pummel it with a baseball bat. Hearing that filled me with indignation. When my father came home, I asked him why my uncle did what Katie had said he had done. I got in trouble for making an accusation like that, and soon after, Katie was fired. I felt horrible. My mother was still in the hospital. Finding out that your husband has not only taken out a restraining order against you, but has brought home a perky blonde girlfriend doesn't do a lot for your mental health. I'd gotten Katie fired by assuming my dad would come clean with me, and worst of all, Peaches wasn't there to comfort me. I was raised Christian, so I didn't believe animals had souls, so I never entertained any possibility that Peaches might come visit me in her afterlife. If any cat deserved to get into a feline version of heaven, it was Peaches. But a little after I found out that she had been killed, I began to hear a mournful meowing at night near my window. I couldn't go outside because the alarm was on. So I'd take my flashlight and shine it on the ground, hoping that, if it was Peaches, she'd come and pounce on it. But nothing happened, so I went to bed. I heard that mournful crying often, and when I asked my father and his girlfriend if they'd heard anything, they told me it was probably just the wind. I knew the difference between a cat's meow and the wind, but they wouldn't listen. The meowing continued. A few years later, my dad and his new wife decided to send me to boarding school. It made sense. I was an excellent student, testing well by my school standards, and my stepmother hated me. Feeling was almost mutual. I didn't want to fight with her. I just wanted her to be honest about how long she and my dad had really known each other. And I welcomed the chance to leave home early. But the meowing didn't stop. Even over 100 miles away from home. My roommate said that she heard it too. But she suggested that it was a local cat. I didn't contest it because... I didn't want everyone in my new school thinking that I was some wacko who couldn't hack it two hours away from home without her kitty cat. I learned to sleep without thinking too hard about the sound. Then one day, I came home after classes to find a dead baby bird on my windowsill. I didn't have a screen in my window and my roommate couldn't stand the room when it was stuffy, so we usually left the windows open. At first, I thought it was a sick joke. Then I accused my roommate, who had recently converted to Wicca, of performing an animal sacrifice for Satan. I didn't realize that witchcraft had nothing to do with Satan at the time. I was naive and in need of an education. She told me that she had nothing to do with the incident and accused me of trying to get her kicked out. I should have believed her, though. She believed in the sanctity of all life, even chewing me out when I set up little ant traps to handle our massive infestation. If ants were that special to her, surely she wouldn't kill a baby bird. I tried to shrug it off, hoping to patch things up between the two of us and we could room together in peace. The meowing continued at night, seemingly louder now. I began sleeping with headphones on. I kept the windows closed and told my roommate to just open hers if it had a screen on it. And I tried to concentrate on my schoolwork. I may have been a good student when I was younger, but in high school, I was practically a delinquent. 
By my senior year, I was certain I was going to get kicked out and was only through the grace of God or the devil or the Illuminati. Hey, who knows? They might just like me. That I remained enrolled in that school. To cope with my constant worry, though, I drank. But it was rarely till I was drunk, just until I calmed down. One Friday night, however, I didn't limit myself, and I drank Jose Cuervo mixed with Pepsi until I passed out, which wasn't long considering I weighed only 100 pounds and was new to alcohol. That night, I dreamt Peaches was purring on my chest, which was odd because I hadn't really thought about her in a long time. I wasn't even sure if I was hearing her meow anymore. I thought that either I had gotten sane or she had given up on me. I awoke Saturday morning feeling quite awful and yet somehow peaceful. There was a sharp knock at my door and the intrusive sound of keys entering the lock. I felt something stab my chest and I winced thinking it was all part of the hangover. Miss Jackson leaned into my room and asked in her always optimistic sounding Australian accent if I was going to the House of Blues with the rest of my class, which I had signed up for a month before and completely forgotten about. I sat up, groggy, my brain feeling like a desert, told her that I was sick and that I was sorry I couldn't make it. She gasped when the blanket fell from my chest. You're bleeding, she told me. I looked down at my white tank top and saw a blood stain flowing in the middle of my chest. I pulled the shirt away, and when I wiped away the blood with my fingers, I saw three small parallel lines running down the middle of my chest. Miss Jackson brought me some antiseptic and a bandage from the dorm first aid kit, and I applied it, telling her that I had run into the metal staircase. I'm pretty sure she didn't believe me, but she had a van of students to take to Los Angeles, so she left me in bed, alone and puzzled, and how I'd gotten scraped when my windows weren't open. I was on the second floor and only the faculty and I could get into my room. Seniors don't have roommates. It's one of the perks of being a senior. Then I heard the purring. It sounded as if it were right next to me. But I was feeling too miserable to check it out. Instead, I hugged my knees to my chest, pulled the blankets up and let the rhythm of the purring lull me to sleep the way it had when I was a kid, trying to sleep through my parents' fighting. I stared at those scrapes a lot after that, getting lost in their symmetry. The wounds left a scar, which my boyfriend affectionately calls my wolverine mark. The meowing continues, even though I'm living in Colorado now, almost five years later. Every now and then, my boyfriend and I will find the carcass of a baby bird on our welcome mat, and I just clean it up, shrugging as if I don't know what's happening. But sometimes, especially when I'm trying to check my email at home, I hear purring, and at times, I feel something brush against the underside of my nose as if it's a cat's tail. And I wonder if Peaches has accepted my new boyfriend and if my boyfriend's going to get mauled if he ever hurts me. So far, though, we are happy, and I think that's why I hear more purring then hear mournful meowing. That story is from Michelle. Felix was my long-haired black Angora cat. I adopted him when I was still in college. He was about a year old at the time. 
adopted him from a young woman who was moving out of the country and couldn't keep him. Felix was one of those animals that many people were drawn to because of his quirky and almost human personality. He also had a Peter Sellers-like gift for physical comedy. Instead of meowing like most cats when he wanted inside, Felix had a way of scraping his front paws across the door and banging on it. It sounded very much like someone knocking. When he first came to live with me, I lived downstairs in a nondescript block of two-story apartments. One afternoon, I let Felix out to do his business, and since we lived on a fairly busy street, I got concerned when he didn't immediately return after a few minutes, so I went to the front door, opened it, and looked out to see what was keeping him. I caught sight of him as he was making his way up to the apartment next door and, and watched as he sat up and proceeded to knock. In a moment, the door opened and a woman appeared. It was obvious that she was expecting a much taller visitor because it took a moment for her gaze to come to rest with some amusement upon Felix, who was sitting on the welcome mat. Felix, however, was not amused by the appearance of someone he was obviously not expecting and began to visibly panic, looking back and forward rapidly first to the neighbor and then back across to me several times. After a second or two, he bounded across the walkway and shot past me through the door while the neighbor and I dissolve into fits of laughter. Felix was also not the most gracious of felines. While others of his species can demonstrate their cat-like grace by jumping up on a narrow knick-knack shelves and carefully picking their way around delicate breakables without moving them so much as a hair, Poor Mr. Felix, as everyone affectionately called him, had been cruelly denied that particular talent. His attempts at such feat of agility would invariably result in disaster as precious figurines clattered to the floor, followed soon after by the thud of his stocky body with its thick, luxurious coat of black fur. Immediately, in true Peter Sellers style, he would leap to his feet and then turn and glare suspiciously, first over one shoulder and then the other as if trying to catch the culprit who was obviously responsible for pushing him off and causing him to fall. Felix was also something of a practical joker. He and I lived alone in a tiny house while I attended college, and often I studied late at night, and my books and notes spread out all around me, and he would just lie napping on the corner of my bed. Upon more than one occasion, he awakened suddenly with a start, sat bolt upright, and focused intently upon the front door. Whenever he displayed this behavior and remained in a heightened state of vigilance for more than just a few seconds, my growing sense of apprehension about the possibility of a prowler outside would force me to lay down my books, get up, and warily make my way to the window to investigate. Listening for the slightest sound outside, hardly daring to breathe, I might spend several minutes peering cautiously out first one window then another at every possible angle before I was satisfied that there was nothing out of the ordinary to be concerned about. On these occasions, I would turn around only to find Felix looking directly into my eyes with the corners of his mouth curled up in amusement. Then he would lie slowly back down on the corner of the bed with a smug look on his face as if to say, that trick works every time. Felix was still with me when I got married, got pregnant, and gave birth to my daughter Carmen. He seemed to love Carmen from the moment that I brought her home from the hospital and would often sleep curled up beside her in her crib. As she grew older, he spent hour after hour just napping near her in the room as she played, chattering away to him the entire time. 
I guess Carmen was about seven years old when Mr. Felix passed away in his sleep at the age of about 16. We buried him on the hill behind the house and held a small ceremony there, tears rolling down our cheeks. Carmen gathered flowers and laid them lovingly on his grave. For months following the funeral, it seemed to me as though I would catch a glimpse of him, as I had a million times, skittering in front of my car as I came down the driveway, then I would realize this was simply not possible and dismiss the thought. About six or seven months after Mr. Felix passed, I was sitting in our living room one afternoon, reading a magazine. Carmen was dashing around the room, skipping and playing and dancing, as only young children would all that energy do. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw her start to run from one corner of the large room to the other. Suddenly, she stopped in mid-stride, on tiptoe, in the middle of the room, flinging her arms out to counterbalance herself as to keep herself from falling. She froze in this position, staring intently at the door in front of her. As the rest of her body remained in that awkward position, she slowly turned her head to look at me. I could see that her mouth and both eyes were open wide in an expression of pure astonishment. It seemed to me as though she was trying to speak, but was dumbfounded and couldn't seem to find her voice. But she didn't have to, because I knew immediately, just from the look on her face, what had happened. After a few seconds of silence, I said to her gently, You saw Mr. Felix, didn't you? Still staring at me with that bewildered look on her face, eyes as wide as saucers, she could only nod her head a couple of times, very slowly. I continued, And you didn't want to kick him accidentally, so you stopped short and then realized he wasn't here anymore, didn't you, honey? She nodded again, closed her mouth, and slowly began to lower her arm. It's okay, sweetie, I reassured her. I still see him too sometimes. That story is from Jean. When I was 12, we had a lovely little puppy. He was vibrant and energetic and so full of life. He loved to play with my brother, nine at the time, and me. He was small, less than a foot in height, even when he was full grown, and very hairy and cuddly. He was black all over except for some small patches of white over his eyes and chest. He was devoted to mother. He followed her all day, wagging his thick, bushy tail with his wet tongue lolling around. He raced about on short little legs, so we called him Stubby. We had just moved into a house in Whitefield, on the outskirts of Bangalore, India. The house had a pretty name, Mayflowers. It was an old house built nearly a century ago by the British Raj. Like most houses of that era, it had high ceilings, large rooms, and a big garden. It was too big for us, and Father had simply shut away most of the rooms. It was a terribly lonely area. There were no houses around, and we had to go down to the village in Whitefield if we needed anything. But it was the only affordable place. It had its own bore well for water supply, so no extra bills to pay. Soon after we moved in, we realized why it had been so cheap. 
It began when my mother was busy with preparations for the festival of Ganesha, cooking up loads of sweets and fried snacks. She was constantly scurrying from the storeroom to the kitchen. After frying a new batch of Mercus, she packed them all up in a tin container, covered it carefully with some newspaper, and put it in the storeroom to cool. Now Stubbs was notorious for stealing food from the kitchen. He was sitting just outside the kitchen door watching her. She didn't allow him any closer. As she stepped into the storeroom, she saw an extremely large, thick snake coiled up on one of the back shelves. It had its hood up and was clearly a king cobra. It stared at her unflinchingly. Mother stepped back in a panic and slammed the door of the storeroom shut. She dropped the tin on the kitchen counter, raced out of the kitchen, and closed the kitchen door fast. She dragged one of the bedsheets off the divan to seal the crack at the bottom of the door. Now, Stubby was quite excited and found her sudden activity intensely interesting. The next thing Mother did was tie up Stubby out in the garden because he insisted on scrabbling at the bedsheet at the kitchen door. The rest of the afternoon was spent in searching for the King Cobra. A snake charmer from the nearby village, his assistant and my father hunted for hours before finally giving up. We just could not understand where it could have gone as the storeroom had only one way out, through the kitchen. As my mother had spent almost the whole morning there, it was a puzzle as how it got there in the first place. We saw the snake many times after that. My father leaving through the side door one morning encountered it coiled on the creeper. The creepers were planted on both sides of the door and even grew above the door. As he stepped out and turned sideways to pull the door shut, he came face to face with it, the hood of the cobra at his direct eye level. The incident disturbed him so much that he had to rest from work for a few days. Again, the snake charmer searched the overgrown garden, but to no avail. On Pongal, our new year, we had a dreadful time. All was well till the afternoon when my brother took a book and a bowl of hot Pongal and climbed up the guava tree to the windowsill. Some visiting relatives and the rest of the family, feeling very full, retired for a siesta. My brother was sitting quietly in the shade when the snake, perhaps attracted by the milky sweet, turned up at the branches above the window. Shocked, my brother tried to get down the tree in a hurry, and he fell through the branches. He twisted his ankle painfully, giving everyone a scare by screaming the place down. This incident began to make my mother adamant. She did not want to live in a house where a snake turned up every now and then, especially in auspicious occasions like Pongal. My father reluctantly assured her that we would look for another house. But we were too late. Snakes were so much of a part of Indian life and so rarely did they harm people that we did not expect what happened soon after. One night I had a terribly vivid dream. I dreamt I was getting slowly and surely strangled by a large snake that had wrapped itself around me. I could not breathe. My head was swimming and things went all blurry. I was trying to call out to my mother and brother, but no sound came out. The dream was so real that when I suddenly woke up, I was all sweaty and exhausted. I saw my mother looking down at me, most concerned, and my brother standing beside her, looking scared. He had not yet gotten over his fright with the snake. When my mother had assured me that it was all a nightmare, she looked under my cot, wondering why Stubby had not come to investigate. It was an incorrigible habit when anything was going on. He was lying there, 
very still. He was dead. We left Mayflowers within a week for a small two-room house in the village. Both my brother and I were inconsolable, and no amount of promises my father made for a new puppy could make up for what happened. My parents, too, were actually quite disturbed by the strangeness of the whole thing. We did not find peace until one morning, as we sat down to breakfast and each of us began to relate a dream that we had had. We all had the very same dream. Stubby had appeared in our dreams, telling us that the vicious snake was full of anger and that he had to try to stop it from harming us. We could not understand how we all had had the exact same dream. Somehow, though it did not explain everything to us, my brother and I felt better. We liked to remember him like that, as a hero. It was some days later that my father found out something more about the house. The house had belonged to a colonel of the British Raj. He had retired and settled there even after the Indian independence. He even continued his luxurious lifestyle of traveling and hunting. On one of his hunting expeditions, he had captured and brought back with him a large snake, a king cobra. No matter how much the villagers pleaded with him, he would not let it go. He had the mouth of the snake sewn up so it could not harm anyone. The snake died slowly of starvation. The colonel, already a shade eccentric, was said to have gone a little berserk. He kept talking of seeing a large snake that followed him everywhere. He took to carrying his hunting rifle with him at all times. The villagers were afraid of him as he began to use his rifle at the hint of anything long and thin that swayed or moved. Then one morning the colonel did not answer his Batman. Finally the Batman, with the help of some villagers, broke open the door. The old colonel was lying on the disheveled bed, his face distorted in pain. There were red strangulation marks all around his neck. That story is from Vishnupriya from Bangalore, India. You have been listening to Hillbilly Horror Stories Presents Eerie Encounters. If you have an eerie encounter that you would like read on the show, please send it to hillbillyhorrorstories at gmail.com.